0: Hello, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here at Doxology, and I'm going to be doing the sermon read, or the scripture reading tonight. Uh, we are reading out of Psalm 27 today. So turn your, uh, Bible to, uh, Psalm 27. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to grab one up front. We have, a, a several up there for you. That is our gift to you. Uh, or you can always turn to, uh, Psalm 27 on your phone, or, um, yeah, on your phone. I guess we don't do live stream anymore. Um, so. <laughs> Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Uh, well, good evening everybody and Happy Father's Day to any fathers with us. I don't see any of our dads. I guess that's what doxology dads do on Father's Day. They skip church. How dare you? I hope you're listening to this. Just kidding. We don't motivate through guilt here, usually. Um, if, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve Lead, pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. And uh, this summer we are walking through the Psalms. And if you all take away one thing from this series, the Summer in the Psalms, is that it is always better to be near God. So that, that's the point of this image here. Um, I don't know if you guys got that, but the idea here is drawing near to God is always going to be brighter and more beautiful, and you'll see reality more clearly when you're in the light. That's when you're near God as opposed to in the darkness. And so through all the highs and the lows, drawing near to God is always going to be better. We don't want to be, you know, cultural Christians where we say we're believers, but we don't know God firsthand. And uh, the Psalms give us the language on how to do that. And what I love about today's psalm, in Psalm 27, is essentially what we see here is that beauty is not a luxury. Uh, you could say it's one of the ways to sum up this psalm. Beauty is not a luxury. So, you know, if you take small children or even some adults to a museum or a symphony, and they're, they just they hate it, right, because I have to look at one more old painting, and I have to listen to one more song at the symphony, but as you get older, you, you appreciate it. Uh, it was not too long ago I took Titus outside in the evening, and the way that the sun was coming through and refracting through the trees was just beautiful. And so I was like, oh, Titus, look how beautiful, you know, that sunset is. And he looks up and right away goes, mm, I'd rather pick up this dead cicada instead. And he picks up the dead cicada and starts crushing in his hands. And he goes, we just don't get beauty when we're young. But as we grow older, we grow to appreciate it. And what David shows us here is it's not only that beauty is not a luxury, um, but like a nice to have. But beauty is a necessity, Uh, We see in the psalm there's a clear link between beauty and safety or between beauty and fear Uh, that's not very intuitive to us. And so uh, let's look at what we can learn about that. So we'll see this through uh, three main points that David makes. So first we'll see there's a threat he's experiencing And then number two, the the solution. And number three, how to get the solution. So first, number one, what's the threat that David's experiencing? Number two, what's the solution? And then number three, how do you get the solution once you know what it is? Okay, so first, number one, what's the threat that David's experiencing? And he puts it in general terms and in specific terms. So first, the general. Uh, See verse two. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. So an army surrounding you with their sole aim to like capture you and physically hurt you, that's about as intense as a physical threat as you can get. And then see what he says in verse 10. This essentially is the bookends of what he's fearing. Verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So this is about as intense of an emotional wound as you can experience, right? So some of you may know this from, from firsthand experience. Family bonds, because of how tight they are, have the, have the greatest potential to hurt you because of how intense those bonds are. So here, David here, he's covering the entire spectrum of physical threats to emotional threats and just giving words to the fact that to be human is to feel fragile and vulnerable, um, and I love that the Lord acknowledges this about us and he doesn't chastise us for it, but he, he gives us permission to feel it. But then he helps us know how to deal with it. And uh, how one writer put it, he's not a Christian, but his name's Ernest Becker and he wrote a Pulitzer winning book called The Denial of Death in the 70s. And he says, you know, just speaking about the fragility of being human. And he says, I think to live life well is to live in the reality of the rumble of panic beneath everything. There's not a, like, a, such an ap- like the rumble of panic un- underneath everything that you experience as a human being. Where if you slow down, you know, you stop being distracted long enough, you start to get anxious. Why? Because you know there's so many things that have potential to hurt you. But what David's saying is, I have something that it doesn't matter what's thrown my way, I can face it. It's pretty amazing. Okay, so generally, no matter what happens, I can face it. But he gives a specific example here too. So, and we see that in beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? So notice David doesn't say, what shall I fear? He says, whom shall I fear? Right? Of whom shall I be afraid? So what David's getting at in specific terms here is the fear of people. And he's not just talking about people being able to physically harm him. So he has this army encamped around him. But we know he's not just talking about physical harm. One, because of the context of the chapter. So we saw verse 10 where he's he's feeling the wounds of his father and mother having forsaken him. In verse 12, we see false witnesses have risen up against me. So he's talking about social harm that takes place as well. So he's talking about the fear of people. And what's the fear of people? And we know what the fear of people can look and feel like because of what he contrasts it with in the context of the verse. So notice he he says, I don't fear people. Why? Because the Lord is my light and my salvation, verse one, and the Lord is my stronghold, verse, verse, same verse, verse one, part B. So in other words, because people are not my light, my stronghold, my salvation, I do not need to fear them. So what does it mean? What, what is light, salvation, stronghold? What's that, what's that language getting at? Well, Light doesn't always enable you to see things, but it impacts how you see them. So I'm not speaking, you know, I'm not speaking firsthand here. I'm sure this is just what you guys did in in high school or maybe just last week. But if you ever go to a, you know, a store like Abercrombie & Fritch or Hollister, you know, what do you notice? Like you get a piece of clothing and you take it into the changing room and you notice the lights are all, again, not that I know this, but, you know, the lights are all dimmed and there's mahogany, like dark colored walls. And you put on the shirt and you look at yourself in the mirror like, yeah, that's right. Like, I look pretty good. And so you spend the $70 on the shirt because of how good it makes you look. And then you get home and you put it on in your bedroom before you going and you look at yourself and you're like, oh, no, I don't look nearly as, as good as I thought. it. Why? Because the light is different. Okay, so depending on what lighting you have, it, it, it affects how you see something. Okay, so what about salvation? To Your salvation is anything that puts you back together when you're in pieces. Salvation is anything that makes you whole. What's a stronghold? The, the stronghold is the place or the person that you run to when you're in danger and you know you'll be safe. So think about Empire Strikes Back when the Rebel Alliance is running from the empire and they run to that base on the planet Hoth. And what was it, Abbey Echo Base? Was that the name of it? And uh, yeah, so they run to the base, and because that's their stronghold, they know that's the place they can go where they're going to be secure. So that your stronghold is where you feel safe. Now here's the point as we talk about fear of people. What happens if you don't have this deep fellowship and union with God, and he is not real to you, and so what other people see about you becomes what you see about yourself because people are your light. And what people say about you, or don't say about you, validates you. Or tears you apart and leaves you in pieces because people are your salvation. Or depending on who's in your life or maybe who's, threat, who's being threatened to be taken away from your life, you no longer feel safe because people are your stronghold. You see what's going on here? And so anytime you make someone or a group of people your light, your salvation, your stronghold, you are giving power to people. You're allowing them to have power over you in a way that's only meant to be given to the Lord. And so what, what are some concrete examples? I mean, maybe you guys are already thinking of some, but some ways as you think about, like, what are the different ways that b- being afraid of people can manifest itself? And here's one example from my life. So as I was thinking about this, one of the ways that I fear people is I resist doing something risky or something that I'm, I'm not sure I can probably win at because I know it's going to make me look incompetent somehow, right? And so this is one of the reasons why I resisted going into ministry for a long time, because in ministry, you can't win in ministry, right? Like, like in the same way that you can win as a salesperson or as a lawyer, because, I mean, what's winning in, in ministry? I mean, as a minister, your main job is to maintain a Christ-centered heart and have a robust faith in, in the power of God and the reliability of his promises. And then as you shepherd people, you're literally one hundred percent 100% dependent on the Lord, to do in your heart and other people's hearts what you have no control over. And I was like, that sounds way too risky for me. No, thank you. And, and but yet here we are. So welcome to, welcome to Doxology. But yeah, so that, that's one thing. I just, I hate doing things that are, are risky because of how, if, if other people see me fail, like, I'm, I'm afraid of that. And so think about some other ways that you might, that you might fear people. So one is, you might, be, you might be very concerned about having the right look. Okay, so people seeing you as attractive or intelligent or generally competent. Another way you know you fear people is you get defensive when people criticize you or you have an emotional crisis afterward. Another way you can fear people is if somebody hurt you in the past. Um, So say, be it an authority figure or someone in a particular professional position or a man or a woman, and then you project that anger on to the the people in that same category in the present that's giving people power over you. Maybe you avoid disagreement or any kind of uncomfortable conversation, like the plague, because you do not want somebody to dislike you. Love hunger is a big, big one. Like, if you're not married and you always need to be in a relationship because you need to feel emotionally desired or sexually desired, that's giving people power over you that only God is meant to have. Or if you're married, this plays out, okay, giving your spouse power over you can look like, can can play out a number of ways. It can look like controlling them and never wanting them to be on their own or worrying about what are they doing without you, right, or becoming bitter, or or being overly concerned with them validating you or not validating you. So it happens within marriage as well. All these ways are ways that we can give people power of us. So don't just think physical safety but there are many other ways as well. And so what David says here is when he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation and my stronghold, no matter what life throws at me, whether it's an accomplishment I really want, some circumstance I want to change, or relationships and people in my life, where he's going to go with us is if we don't respond appropriately to these fears and terrors, is, it's not just a matter of psychotherapy where we'll have less anxiety and fear, but we're going to be pushed out of living life with Christ and into a, into a state of ambient anxiety and worry, which here's why that's, why that's so troubling and severe is because worry is functional atheism at its heart. Because worry is you're living as if life is random, Right, That you've somehow been left alone, that God somehow checked out, or that he doesn't care about you. Okay, but when you respond instead to the threats or the longings in your life, with the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold, then you can face anything and live life rightly with God. Okay, so that's number one, the, the, the basic threat we feel as humans, okay, just run, runs the game at so many things that can happen. So number two, what is the solution? And verse four is key to this entire psalm. I and mean, we could do a number of sermons just on verse 4. But so look at verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So know what's fascinating here is David has an army encamped around him. It sounds like his own parents have forsaken him as well. He doesn't ask for God to make the army go away. He doesn't ask for his parents to come back to him. Those are those are fine and good things to pray. God is our good heavenly father, wants us to, to ask for things. But see what he says, be, the beginning of the verse. One thing. And in the Hebrew, the, the essence that you get is like one, one, one thing. There's only one thing I ask. So no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, as long as I can get this one thing. And what is it? It's unbroken fellowship, union with God. And then specifically toward the end, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And it's that word beauty that's key. So if I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and have an experience of his beauty on my heart, so much so that it's as if my joy sensors are overflowing, then I feel safe. Okay, so how does that work? So first think about what does it mean to find God beautiful? Or what does it mean to find anything beautiful? Um, so we talked about it a little bit in the introduction, but think about, you know, so if you are gazing at something beautiful or you're listening to something beautiful, you're doing it because it's immediately satisfying, aesthetically, to your mind and heart on the spot. Right? And you're, you're gazing at it or listening at it for what it is in and of itself. It's not because of its utility. It's not because it's a means to an end. You're satisfied in it for what it is. And so in the same way, to find God beautiful... It's to not go to him just because he's useful, but because he's lovely and aesthetically satisfying for your entire being because of who he is. Not because he's a means to an end. And so I think about uh, just the other day, you know, Titus is walking now. And so I took him out on a walk. And uh, when you walk with a one-year-old, it takes about, an hour to go 100 yards. Because, you know, every two steps, you know, I need to, oh, I need to pick up and examine this leaf. Like, he hasn't lost the joy of discovery. I need to regain that myself, okay? I need to look at this leaf. Or every dog we see, I need to bark at and laugh at. I need to look at that bird and point out that plane. And there's a bunch of dead cicadas that I need to pick up. And so, but it was such a joy-filled time for me to do that. Why? It wasn't because There was an end that we were trying to accomplish, right? Like we were walking to the store to pick up something or he was helping me with a chore, helping me build something in the home. No, the the means was the end. It was being with him. And the joy came for who he is in himself. And so it is with God. To find God beautiful is to um, not just find him useful. So as many ancient and dead Christians have put it, a religious person will find God useful but someone who's been changed by the love of Christ find God's beautiful. And so it's worth it to even pause here and think about, you know, do you find Jesus beautiful? Is prayer boring for you because, well, I tried, I'm just not really getting anything out of it. Well, okay, now you're using God, God right because he's useful or as a means to not, be, not because of the pure joy of, of who he is. And so, and when you find the Lord beautiful, here's what it does, and here's how it relates to safety. And the first way it, it helps immensely is you, when you find something beautiful, it has a way of lifting you up out of yourself. And I remember this was, uh, what, four years ago or so before, um, before we started at the Clarendon campus, and I was so stressed out because uh, I hadn't had a steady income for about a year, and I was still in the process of raising funds, so our family didn't have all the money we needed. Uh, we had never done a church plant before, before we got sent out, so I was scared about that. And I was out with Kelsey's family on a vacation. We were at the beach. And I got up early one morning, you know, 6 a.m. or something like that. And I just went to go run along the beach. And when I did that, and the it was the East Coast, so the sun was rising up on the East Coast. And as I saw the sun hitting the water and I heard the sound of the waves, I, I forgot all my troubles. Why? Because when you see something beautiful, like it reminds you that life isn't about yourself, And your life isn't just this little song that's all about you and often out of tune, but there's a much grander symphony being played that you get to be a part of. Uh, John Piper has a great quote about this. He says, um, oh, he has a great quote. What is it? (laughs) It's something to the effect of, he says, nobody nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. He says, because something to the effect of, um, nothing heals the soul, like beholding splendor like you don't heal the soul by beholding yourself you heal your soul by beholding splendor and so and that's what david's doing here because i mean because when you're obsessed with your little life and your little kingdom you're always going to feel besieged you're always going to feel discontent you're always going to be be afraid why because everything is up to you and what your what your hands can hold but notice what david's doing here david's a literal king he has a literal kingdom But if he's obsessing over his kingdom, he's always going to be thinking, I don't have enough chariots. I don't have enough money to fund the industries. Are my people loving me enough? Is there going to be a revolt? And there were revolts. But instead, he's gazing at the beauty of the Lord by reminding himself, life is so much more than about me. And so, yes, there are still things that are terrifying me, but I can rest because I have what matters most. And that leads us to the to the second reason why beholding God is beautiful relates so inextricably to safety. And that's because David knows there is a there is a direct link between your anxiety and the vulnerability of your greatest joys. There's a there's a direct link between your anxiety and the vulnerability of your greatest joys. So you think about what's the greatest fear for most, if not all, parents? something happens to their child, because their child is one of their greatest joys, so they're often afraid that something's going to happen to their child. So what about a less acceptable but just as pervasive as an example? If you are a vain person, what is something that terrifies you? Is somebody looking at you saying, hmm, you're kind of below average looking, or you're you're of below average intelligence? A vain person hates that. Because why? Like being seen as attractive or intelligent is one of your greatest joys. But what David's saying here is if beholding the Lord's beauty, if he's my greatest joy, I can't lose it. Because God is the only thing that can't be threatened. God is the only thing that can't can't be taken away. And so no matter what I face, I have the one thing that can't be taken away. And not only that, it's only God who has the metaphysical clout to be your light, your stronghold, your salvation. No human can do that. No circumstance can do that. No accomplishment can do that. Only God and God alone. And David said, because I have that, I'm secure. Because God is not just useful to me, he's beautiful to me. And I can't stop drinking in enough of him and being with him. So that's, that's the solution to the rumble of panic underneath everything is beholding God's beauty. And you say, okay, that's, that's great, but ha- how do I get that, David? Like I can, see, I can see how much better my life would be, how much more real God would be in my heart. And uh, for those of you who are feeling this, um, I know I've talked with a few of you uh, lately who've We've had conversations about, and I'm similar to this, where like you long for the experience of God. Um, and for me, a, a lot of my life too has been—I grew up in the church, and I've I've known things cognitively about God, but so much of my life has feel like I'm you know trying to grab on to miss because I want Him to feel real. And so David gives us some steps on on how to get there, and actually on how to experience God's beauty, and don't be underwhelmed by maybe how familiar it is because that's precisely our problem. Okay, so first, what does he say on how do we get this this sense of God's beauty on our heart? And the first thing we see is constancy. Constancy. So see verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You've said, seek my face. So my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. So David's becoming desperate. And a number of commentators have said that they think these Psalm 27 is two different Psalms that ancient editors like grabbed together and just smushed together because Psalm 1 through 6 is exuding so much confidence And then all of a sudden in verse 7, it's like David becomes split-minded, and all of a sudden he's panicking, and he's lost the confidence he once had. But to say these are just, they're not two psalms joined together. The reason why, and this is one of the things I love about the scriptures, is David's giving voice to what you and I so often experience, about like how life often feels like a yo-yo with God, right? Where one week you can feel like you're on a mountaintop with him, and the next week you're utterly terrified, and he doesn't feel real. So you go from, you know, faith to fear. You go from trust to trouble. And that's, what, what, that's what's going on here. David's saying, I know this is what I need, but I don't feel you. And so what do you need to do here? And The reason why David became the man that he did, the reason why he was able to face armies, why he was able to face betrayals and everything that he went through is because David continued to seek the presence of God and the beauty of God even when he didn't feel like it was there. So you see in, at how he ends the psalm, verse 14, verse 13 and 14. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord, wait for the Lord. So it hasn't happened yet. Like the psalm ends without a resolution because David's just hanging on in naked faith, hoping it will come. And so as you think about what does it mean to be constant and seeking God's beauty, um, at its essence it's to continue, it's continue to be constant in the things that you know God has invited you into even when you don't feel like it. And I know for a number of you, if you're like me, you've heard admonitions like, read your Bible and pray regularly and be in a community. And go so many times that you just don't even hear anymore. It's so really like I've, I've tried it. You know, I do the Bible in a year plan for the first three weeks of every year. And then I fall off the map. And so then I wait till January of the next year. And I try it again. And it just doesn't really seem to do much for me. But think about how any relationship works. Think about any marriage. Think about any relationship with a best friend. Is most of that relationship these mountaintop experiences where you're just, like, gazing into each other's eyes in pure bliss? Maybe some of your all's friendships or marriages are. I mean, not mine. No, but what happens? It's through the mundane, daily, monthly, ordinary things that you do with those people, Right? It's the many knocks on the door and goodbye again. It's the many text messages that you continue to send with, with thoughtful comments and funny comments. It's helping each other find one another's keys and, and helping one another when they're down until because of the track record that you get, right, with all those days and days of just ordinary life in their presence is what leads to those mountaintop moments where you're either laughing so hard your belly hurts or you can comfort the other person or, or make them cry or make them laugh with nothing more than a look. And so it is with God. And so, for some of you, where you wonder, I want that experience of God's beauty. Um, one story that's helpful to me is in First Kings eighteen. Elijah he prepares an altar. Right, he's gonna he's like doing a a battle with with uh, with some of the other. Uh, I think it was with the Canaanites. And so it's like a battle to gods. And so Elijah goes to battle with him. And he builds the altar. Right, so he puts the stones together. He puts the wood. He puts the sacrifice on top. And then God's fire came down. So what happened there? Elijah didn't make the fire come down. God made the fire come down. But Elijah did the preparation for it to happen. Right. So God doesn't send fire down onto a dirt pile. He sends it down into an altar. In the Christian life, it's the daily time enjoying God's presence in his word, crying out to him, enjoying him in prayer, doing what you're doing right now, enjoying him in church. That's the altar. And you do it enough... And you do it not just for God as a means to an end, but to and you cry out, Lord, show me your beauty. I don't know what that feels like. He'll give it to you. Okay, so that, that's the first thing, constancy. Just like any relationship. Next, what do we see? We see fidelity. Do we want to experience God's, God's beauty in our heart? Fidelity. And then we see that in verse 11. So teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. And this is intriguing because even though David is facing real fears, he's essentially asking, Lord, show me what pleases you. Show me your law. Show me, like, how to walk in your way. And so what's the link there between walking in God's way and experiencing his beauty? Well, think about relationships again. So imagine a marriage where one person doesn't care what pleases their spouse— and they know there's things that displease their spouse. And they, they do those things over and over and over. And throughout the day, they don't really live with any thought except for themselves. And they return home. And they see their spouse. And they, they walk up to their spouse. And they say, it's so good to see you. Let's go over to the couch because I just want to experience you. Not going to happen. Not in any world does that happen. Why? Because intimacy... And enjoying with one another always entails doing what you know pleases and delights the beloved. And so you can't expect that experience of the Lord's beauty and feeling him more than you do a person, more than you do feeling all these other things you pursue when you're walking against his ways. And so guys, I I assume this is true of you. It's true for me. For some of you, maybe the reason why you have never or you seldom experienced this palpable, like overwhelming sense of God's beauty is because there, there's something in your life that you're holding on to and you're, ref, you're refusing to give it to the Lord. You're saying, God, I can give you all these other things, but this one thing I have to have. And yet if, if that's your demeanor... I mean, just in love, you can't, not because God is stingy. I mean, the whole Bible is God pursuing you. It's just, it's how life works. And I know it can be scary to give up something that you're hanging on to. I mean, for some of you, it could be your money. You've never actually given generously of your money because you're scared of what will happen if you do. Right? For others of you, it could be relationships. For others of you, it could be, it could be just the general disposition of wanting to live life on your own terms and for it to be about your kingdom. And the only way you experience God's beauty is by walking in his ways. Okay, and then number three, what do we see? How do we experience this beauty of the Lord? And you need to gaze. This is the final thing we see, you need to gaze. So we see that in the end of verse four. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So you know when you see something beautiful, you can't stop looking at it. You can't stop listening to it because it's just so breathtaking. And, and here's what's fascinating. So I talk with a lot of people who, in the church and outside the church, they say something to the effect of, you know, I don't need to go to church to experience God. You know, yeah, I can just, I, I pray. I pray when I want to, and, but I'm not really a church-going person. You know how I really experience God? I experience him in creation. So, you know, I I go to the Grand Canyon, I go to Switzerland, I I go to this, you know, I I go to any number of these beautiful places and that's where I experience God's beauty. And that's true. We saw in Psalm 19, right, a number of weeks ago that we we do and should experience God's beauty in creation. But what David's pointing out here is that's not the primary place you experience God's beauty. So where is it? And we see it in verse 4. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. So the temple wasn't built until David's son Solomon came along, but David here is talking about the tabernacle, which was essentially the same thing, uh, same purpose. So inquire in his temple. And then he says in verse 6, notice, I'm going to sing and make melody to the Lord. I'm going to make sacrifices with shouts of joy. So where is he experiencing shouts of joy? It's where he makes sacrifices, in the tabernacle, This is amazing. So the thing about the tabernacle is, as David's pointing out, is the tabernacle is where the sacrifices would take place. And this was uh, particularly true in the Holy of Holies. So in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was something called the mercy seat. It was this gold slab. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would take the blood from the sacrificial offering that would atone for the sins of the people, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and when he did that the glory of God the glory cloud of God would come down on the mercy seat and the glory cloud of God this was the same cloud that led the Israelites through the wilderness and at nighttime it lit up as if it were like a pillar of fire and so when God's glory cloud when his beauty comes down over the mercy seat where the sacrifice takes place do you know what God's communicating he's saying absolutely you can see my beauty in creation You can see my beauty when you look at the galaxies. You can see my beauty when you look at light shimmering on the waters. You can see my beauty when you see something like a horse galloping over the plains or a hawk riding the the thermals. But my beauty is displayed nowhere in creation as clearly as it is in redemption. And it's in redemption where you see I'm the most beautiful. And sure enough, in John chapter 1, when Jesus Christ appears on the scene, in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says, Jesus Christ came and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, and then in John chapter 12, Jesus is talking with his followers, and he says, when I am lifted up, he's referring to the cross. He says, when the Son of Man, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And you hear what Jesus is saying? It's when I'm at the cross that I will be most beautiful. That's what's going to draw you to me, because yes, is Jesus beautiful when he teaches the crowds? Yes, Jesus is beautiful when he heals the sick. Yes, Jesus is beautiful when he heals the when he. When he heals the sick and feeds the hungry. But Jesus is nowhere more beautiful than at the cross. Because it's at the cross where you see Jesus said to you what David is crying out for here in Psalm 27 verse 4. When Jesus was on the cross, he was saying, there's one thing I seek. No matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, there's one thing I want. And that is to have deep union with you. I want deep fellowship with you. That's the one thing I ask and I want to dwell with you. And that's what he did. He followed through with it. He took all of your sin upon his shoulders and then when he rose from the dead, that was his promise to you that in me you have nothing to fear. Guys, I, if that's not beautiful to you, There is no person that's more beautiful than that. There is no circumstance that's more secure than that. And Jesus delights to empower you to give you every single thing you need to have constancy, to have fidelity, and to gaze at him. So then you too, like David, can say, Just one thing I ask, that I will dwell in the presence of God and gaze upon his beauty forever, and you'll be secure. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you aren't just that you aren't just powerful, and that you don't just give us things, but that you're beautiful, um, Lord. And I pray that David's prayer will be the prayer of mine and the prayer of each person in this church, Lord. That the main thing we want. Uh, whether we feel like we have it now or even if it's a longing we feel like that we've never experienced, is to see and taste you as beautiful. Will you give that to us, Lord? Uh, Help us to prepare the altar in various ways in our lives. Um, I want that. I want that for me. I want this for each person here. Thank you for your promises to us and sealing them through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.